Good morning, Wisconsin. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's WTMJ Now. News, opinions, Wisconsin. Everything you need to know in the Badger State and beyond. Come give us your thoughts on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Here's your host, Steve Scafidi. And good morning, buddy. Welcome to the Thursday edition. It is the 8th day of February, and I am excited about this hour. We have two really smart gentlemen in studio. To my radio left, I've, I've known him for probably 12 years. That's right. Right on the number. Uh, he's a former U.S. attorney for southeastern Wisconsin, Jim Santel. How are you? Steve, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. Delighted to be with you as part of this important discussion. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the all the, the legal cases swirling yes. around this great country of ours at the the federal level. And it, 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 it there's ongoing stories happening right, right now. now. Supreme Court impact on Wisconsin, too, yes. right? right. Yep. Supreme Court hearing arguments in the Trump uh, ballot access case. And to my radio rights, Attorney Matt O'Neill. I did a podcast with him recently, along with... Uh, our friend, retired Judge Mary Kuhnmensch from the law firm of Fox O'Neill and Shannon. Matt O'Neill, welcome. Hey, thank you, Steve. Great to be here. Excited hey. to talk about some uh, wonderful topics. Yeah, so, I mean, what I love about this this opportunity is all of us are hearing about these cases. We're watching the our nightly programs, whatever those are, on Fox or MSNBC or CNN or, or on the radio with me or other, other uh, broadcasters, and we're not attorneys, I've got two smart attorneys in the room, so I want to I want to walk through these cases. Let's start with the one that we're I'm looking at on the monitor right, right now. So I'll start with you, Jim. the The U.S. Supreme Court is is basically it's called the Colorado case, yes, correct? Right. Can Donald Trump be on the ballot right. for president? This is the primary ballot, the Republican primary election out there, and that's the question. Fascinating, again, that this comes out of a trial. There was actually a trial before the, the trial court judge in Colorado, and based upon the evidence presented, the witnesses, the documents, she found two things. She found, number one, that, yes, Donald Trump had engaged in an insurrection, and that and that the 14th Amendment applies, but she interpreted the language of the word official to mean that official does not include the president. So she came all the way to the edge and finally said, but as to this particular person, Donald Trump remains on the ballot. Goes up to the Colorado Supreme Court, and they adopt, based upon her evidentiary record at trial, they adopt this fundamental notion, yes, indeed, insurrection happened. Donald Trump participated in it. They part company with the lower court judge by saying, oh, by the way, the 14th Amendment does, in fact, include the president. And that's the case now that the Supreme Court this morning, this morning, is arguing, is hearing argument on in Washington, D.C. What's your reading of that? Is, is Donald Trump, in fact, or was he an officer? One of the things that I would recommend to all your listeners, I know that they do this because they're <laughs> I knew right. I there wasn't going to be a yes or no answer. Exactly, right? Right, from a lawyer, right? <laughs> right. Um, you go back and you read the opinion from the Colorado Supreme Court. It is a compelling piece of writing, not just from a legal pr- perspective, but it sets forth in great detail the basis for the finding of an insurrection, Donald Trump's participation, and as my friend Matt will probably comment on as well, under the 14th Amendment here, it's a pretty compelling case. Um, we haven't had this precedentially before, but it's a pretty compelling case. And so if, I would offer that if you had a perfect world of justice and a perfect world where we're not living in other times here, you might have a, uh, a judges and courts who would say, yes, indeed, we're going to affirm that Donald Trump remains off the ballot. We also have this thing going on in Maine at the same time, right? The same kind of issue. Right. Here, however, there are many, many other things. One of the things that we want to talk about is all the options that the Supreme Court will probably be arguing about in the next few moments are called the off-ramps, 
all the ways that it can get to one result or another without necessarily having to wrestle with all the central issues here. There are many, many, many things that they can talk about, including things like who's responsible for enforcing the 14th Amendment, what it means, what the language means. All that will be the subject of the discussion this morning. And Matt, the, the question of insurrection, he doesn't have to be, in, in my reading of that, of that uh, language, he doesn't have to be convicted of insurrection, correct? The, the congressional language, the, the amendment's very broad. It just says engaged in insurrection. So it doesn't say guilty of insurrection, just says engaged. But uh, as much as I respect Jim, I think this uh, chance of this Colorado decision being upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court is near zero. Um, Why do you think that? I think that because I don't see a circumstance in our federalist system that a amendment to the Constitution can be enforced on a state-by-state basis, and I don't think they're going to allow that. I think if this amendment has to be given force, it has to be given force nationally, and that would require, in my opinion, some kind of a finding by a federal court that there was an insurrection and a determination by a federal court that has authority to issue a broader injunction to say that's the remedy. Now, mind you, Steve, the... The language of the amendment itself doesn't bar someone from running for office. The language is to hold any office. Uh, and so there are those who argue, and there's an amicus brief before the court right now that says, uh, none of this, this is all getting before the ball. Anybody can run for office if it turns out you're guilty of insurrection. You just can't take the office. What do you think of that? Right. I, I think there are, there are very compelling arguments in all those directions. And I should say that, indeed, both your guests this morning agree with each other. My comment before <laughs> was about the compelling nature of the underlying uh, Supreme Court decision. I think the Supreme Court is absolutely going to find one of those pathways to overturn the Colorado Supreme Court and put him back in the ballot. I have literally on this show argued with candidates for Wisconsin Supreme Court who told me, as written, that's how I rule. Yep, right. And I said to that individual... We wouldn't have courts if it was that simple. Right. That's simplistic. There's interpretation. Do you, I, if either one of you guys can jump in. There's interpretation to all the words that are codified in our laws and language. Absolutely. That's what judges do all the time. That's why people like Matt and, and I and others uh, write briefs all the time, make those kinds of oral arguments. Here, you've got very little to rely upon, right? There is a case out of New Mexico of a couple of years ago in which a, a state court judge found that a particular state official who was convicted of insurrection on January 6th, that he could no longer hold office. So there's a little bit of precedent out there on that issue. But beyond that, as Matt was just saying, we're writing almost on a clean slate here. And, of course, we've got post-Civil War, right? That's the reason why this, this language is put there. The notion at that time was, well, we can tell who was engaged in the insurrection. It's all those people who seceded. It was clearer, perhaps, at that time than it is now. So do you both agree that this will probably not stand and Donald Trump will be on all the ballots. Correct. I, I believe that as well. 100%. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Matt O'Neill, Jim Santel. We're, we we're just getting ro- getting started here, rolling through all these cases. Uh, presidential immunity, that question right. was sort of answered by an appeals court, federal appeals court. Uh, we'll talk about that and a whole lot more with my two really smart guests today on WTMJ Now. Great hour of radio to start our Thursday here. And I've got a lot of fun stuff coming up later in the show, but this is serious stuff and I've had so many of my listeners over the last... Well, I want to say a year now plus talking about all the legal strategies and all these cases. And we're not attorneys, most of us, but I have two really smart attorneys in the room today. Jim Santel, former U.S. attorney for Southeast Wisconsin, and uh, another local attorney, Matt O'Neill, who's argued cases on redistricting and uh, recalls and all that stuff. You both have a lot of experience in courtrooms. Uh, two days ago, a federal appeals court said the president does not have immunity. 
which is a big deal because that's something that former President Donald Trump has argued. I'll start with you first, Matt. A lot of the conversation nationally from legal scholars and experts has been, boy, these judges did a really unanimous decision, really tight job, didn't leave a lot of gray. My question is for both of you, and I'll start with you, (laughs) will the Supreme Court say, U.S. Supreme Court say, "Ah, nice job, we'll leave it alone? Uh, They won't. I I think institutionally the Supreme Court, as the top court in the land, is going to view this as an unresolved and important question that it is theirs to make a final determination. It is prepped for them to take it. So I think even though they will reach the same result, uh, I think they will take the case, hear the arguments, and make the decision with finality. Would the right word be to set a U.S. Supreme Court precedent? Yes. Okay. So you think it would be unanimous? Uh, I don't. I think it would likely be 7-2 or 8-1. Which is still pretty substantial, given yes. the conservative lean on this court. Three, three of the justices, I believe, appointed by Donald Trump. Jim? Yes. Uh, come to the same conclusion. I think they probably will. I'd amend your question a bit, Steve, just by saying, should they take it? Again, my, the perfect world that I'm positing this morning. The answer is they shouldn't have to, right? This argument, this underlying argument that our president is a king, as Tanya Chotkin dismissed, it's ridiculous. It is frivolous. It is craziness. And the notion that we're spending all this time addressing this issue, which is a non-starter, is a concern to me, and I think are all of us out there. Having said that, I think Matt's right. Probably the Supreme Court wants to weigh in and say definitively, yes, there's no there there. The issue is timing, timing on all this, and whether or not this can be done in time to send Tanya Chutkin, who is the trial court judge, information, their direction on whether she could go ahead with her trial. Now, former President Donald Trump has said over and over again on social media and on some of the interviews he's done with friendly media, uh, national media, that a president has to have immunity. Otherwise, every decision the president, not just him, other people make, can be reviewed or challenged in court. And either of you buy that? Don't buy it for one second. Uh, presidents do have civil immunity, by the way. They can't be sued civilly for anything they do within the scope of their uh, office as president. But to have criminal immunity and say that's somehow a chilling effect, um, I, I, I don't. it has no validity in the Constitution, and it would elevate the president among every other citizen of the country as saying they are not subject to the law, and that can't be and won't be. One of the reasons I brought that up is because... Um, I was doing some research on this topic, and and it's not uncommon for any president who takes military action to at some point post-presidency be accused of being, you know, a warmonger and somebody who killed innocent civilians. That's why I asked the question, because if that happened, would that not fall into that if, if if he didn't have some sort of immunity that he could be sued by people for engaging in military action. Right, and here's where it gets kind of wonky civics. Also, we used to do these cases around the attorney's office. There's a doctrine under the Federal, the Federal Tort Claims Act that says basically you cannot sue for actions in the military field, that sort of thing. That's a tort, that's a civil issue. Significantly to your point and to Matt's good comment, Court of Appeals said this very clearly, the risk of former presidents being unduly harassed by meritless federal criminal prosecutions is slight. They dismissed this whole concept that we're concerned about the future and said, no, no, uh, this is a very narrow thing we're talking about right here. And again, presidents are subject to the rule of law in America. That's also United States versus Nixon going back a few decades as well. So there is there is that precedent out there there as well. There's, there's one other thing, Steve. The, 
Constitution also has the impeachment clause, and part of the impeachment clause points out that even if a president is impeached and not convicted, he can still be tried later uh, criminally. So the Constitution itself recognizes that conduct of a president can lead to criminal prosecution after office. So I think Jim Jim mentioned the timeline here. Yes. Should the U.S. Supreme Court, in their deliberations, in their caseload, worry about a timeline that that impacts a national election. The Supreme Court is aware of that it lives in the real world, right? And I think to the comments that Matt and I are making this morning, the interesting thing that I think we're going to be looking for is the timing on this. Let us suppose that when Donald Trump appeals to the Supreme Court, files this application for a writ of certiorari, which again is the procedural thing to do here, they decide to take it but they also establish a very, very tight time deadline on this. They say, okay, you've got to get your brief in by a week from now. We'll get the, the response a weekend after that. We'll have oral argument the week after that. If they move quickly on this, that's the Supreme Court that recognizes we've got an election going on. Define if they quickly. Don't, define quickly. Quickly would, would be just within weeks. Candidly. And they can do it. We know from back in 2000, when we we're dealing with the Ford uh, Bush versus Gore, they can act. Courts can act very quickly overnight almost and do this. Supreme Court can do this if it decides to take it. If they don't, that's going to be a tea leaf. If they say we're going to schedule this out for a decision in June, then all bets are off. And Tanya Chutkin does not have a chance to try this case probably before the election. Yeah, I agree. The, the Court of Appeals did what I consider a fairly clever thing. They stayed any further prosecution, but they limited their stay to bringing a petition for certiorari by Monday. And if no petition is brought by Monday, even though normally you have 90 days... Is that undue haste? That's really quick. Not in these circumstances. No? No, when there are emergencies, and I'm engaged in a lot of election litigation, and in election litigation, you move, courts move, it can be done. It's hard. It's a lot of work. You set everything in your life aside, everything else aside, but you can do it, and the court has done it, and I think they will do it. And that's that's fascinating. And stuff. there's a reason for that, right? Because you're concerned about the population, the public, right? This is the election of our future leadership. I'm not saying other cases are not significant, both civil and criminal, but this is pretty close to the top. Our guests this hour this is a fascinating hour, and we're just getting warmed up. Jim Santel, former U.S. attorney and from uh, a local attorney's uh, office here in Milwaukee, uh, Matt O'Neill. After the break, um, one of our guests brought this case in front of me, uh, U.S. versus Fisher. I wasn't aware of it. You argue, Mr. Santel, and we'll get to the answer after the break, that this might be the most important of these cases that are looming out there. We'll get to that and more on WTMJ Now. I don't know if you can tell by my voice, but I'm loving this hour. This is sort of one of the uh, the new formats of the show. I'm going to spend a lot of time on some serious questions related to politics, but in this case, on, on Thursdays, the, the legal elements of all of that. And our guests are Jim Santel, former U.S. Attorney, and local attorney Matt O'Neill. So I'm going to start with you, Jim. You brought this to our attention. Um, I'm kind of I'm going to let you lay it out because sure. I was not aware of this case. It's called U.S. versus Fisher. Explain That's exactly right. F I S C H E R. We know there are about 1,200 people from January 6th already brought into the criminal justice system, charged, convicted, sentenced. One of them is Mr. Fisher. He was charged and convicted in the U.S. District Court in the D.C. Uh, 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 trial court there. And he is now appealing his conviction through the appeals court. Um, he got a, actually a favorable ruling from the, the a lower court saying that the statute under which the Department of Justice charged him was not properly applied to him. Okay. Now, a, a later court overturned that. He brings that to the Supreme Court. It's pending right now before the sim- same Supreme Court that's hearing arguments this morning. 
The Fisher, Fisher is the name of the case. And the reason why it is significant is if the Supreme Court, as they sometimes do with criminal statutes, says government, Mr. Attorney General, Madam or Mr. U.S. Attorney, you've overreached. You can't use this statute to address this particular conduct. We're going to vacate, we're going to overturn the underlying conviction. And I will tell you, in this particular case, although I think there's a basis for this conviction under this statute, this is one where I will not bet you more than lunch, Steve, what the Supreme Court may do on this. They could overturn Mr. Fisher's conviction. Now, why is that important for Donald Trump? Because the same statute that Mr. Fisher is challenging effectively, it's called this under the obstruction uh, rubric, if you will, is also the basis for two, two of the four counts of the indictment against Donald Trump in the insurrection case brought by Jack Smith. So if the Supreme Court sometime this term says, you know what, you can't use this statute to address the kinds of things that happened on January 6th, depending upon what they say, it may arguably cut the criminal uh, prosecution against Donald Trump in half. It seems like a backdoor way for the former president to maybe get get his way. Absolutely. And he's not a party to it, Steve, as you just said. He's not a party to it. Interestingly, among the 60 cases before the Supreme Court as of this morning, Supreme Court still has not scheduled oral argument on Fisher. So again, if they issue an opinion in June, interesting to see where the underlying criminal case will be at that time. All right, Matt, you got to jump on this. I know you didn't study it like he did, but it seems rather interesting. It's very interesting. And it, it once again comes back to this whole insurrection was such a fundamentally, uh, new thing for the country and hopefully we never see it again but it gives rise to things we've never had to grapple with and one was how do you charge people for busting into the united states capitol and causing chaos when we're supposed to be counting electoral votes and it sounds like they said well let's find this 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 and the second and third this is uh may or may not be appropriate very proper for the supreme court to rule and if if mr fisher wins it sounds like the the uh, trial for the insurrection will be quicker. And I will say, Steve, that during my time as U.S. Attorney and Assistant U.S. Attorney before that, there are many times, we won't talk about them this morning, when the Supreme Court comes back and overturns what we understood to be 20 years of interpretation of a mail fraud statute, a wire fraud statute. Um, there's a thing called honest services that's been a, the subject of a lot of discussion by all sorts of courts. And all of a sudden, overnight, you recognize, I've got to charge things differently. And, oh, by the way, the convictions, or even the trial I'm going ahead with next week, I can't go ahead with that because the Supreme Court just told me it's more limited. I want to ask you this question. I asked our friend Rick Esselberg, my friend Rick Esselberg for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, this question. You mentioned Bush versus Gore earlier. Is there any opportunity for the U.S. Supreme Court to say with all of these cases, to kind of lump them all together? Is that is that a possibility? It's not. The, the prosecutions are far too varied that are ongoing. One in Manhattan has to do with the hush money payments long before the first election. The one down in Georgia is a state prosecution. Certainly the two Jack Smith cases in D.C. and in Florida could be lumped together, and they are for immunity purposes. It'll apply to both. But I can't see the Supreme Court being able to clump them all in one and rule on everything. I didn't even I agree entirely as to just the federal cases the one that we're talking about centrally here in America, the January 6th case, that's premised upon that insurrection, that undermining the election, and not in any way to diminish the significance of the so-called Mar-a-Lago documents case. But those are different sets of facts. That's taking out of the White House some classified and non-classified documents, different set of laws, different facts. We're going we're to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about a, a special counsel report due on President Biden, his holding of documents, classified documents that he shouldn't have had. Um, just a quick sense of what you think. Which case is most likely to be finished first? 
of the cases pending against Donald Trump. Whoa, that is just a. <laughs> All right, I am, I am a gambler. Um, I want to. I'll answer. I'm not an attorney. The documents case. I, I, I yeah. think. I think the Manhattan case will go first and, oh, okay. and get through, even though it is probably the least. Um, fitting case to go first of all four of them. I once again agree with my friend and colleague here. Um, it is the least fitting. The one that should be going ahead first is the January 6th case. That's the one that we're focused on. That it goes to the future of democracy. The Manhattan case, again, not to undermine the significance of it. Alvin Bragg, the DA there, has said, as has the judge, who's going to be having a status conference sometime soon, you know, if all these other cases, if nobody else can get their act together in time, no trials going ahead, we'll slip in, we'll do this next month, and chances are uh, you could get that case prosecuted first. First one charged among the four criminal cases could be the first one tried as well. What a year ahead. All right, we're, we're just getting warmed up. It's 9.35 on WTMJ. After the break, President Joe Biden, the current President of the United States, handled some classified documents inappropriately, we'll say. I think found in his garage at his, uh, his home. We'll discuss that case, and we got to talk about the DA, mm-hmm. Fannie Willis, yeah. and all of that controversy with our guests, Matt O'Neill, Jim Sansell, after this. Looking at all the legal cases swirling around this upcoming election. Uh, this one doesn't necessarily have to do with the election, but it's, um, I guess, the fair and balanced way I look at things. Not in the Fox fair and balanced, but my version of fair and balanced. The President of the United States, the current President, Joe Biden, who's by the way, running for re-election, he also handled some classified documents in, inappropriately. And there's a apparently a special counsel report that's coming out very soon. I'll, I'll start with you, Jim. What do we think this is going to find? Sure. Sometime soon again, to the credit of the President, President Attorney General, decided to appoint a U.S. attorney to serve as special counsel. That U.S. attorney, by all reporting, predictably, is going to come up with a report that says two things. One is no criminal involvement here, no criminal liability here, which is their key point. There is no intent by the present president to misuse, mishandle these documents, but probably will criticize him for doing what? Yes, for having them in his home and also in his office in Washington. Does the distinction that this president handed them over before he was asked to make a big difference in the special counsel? I think it does. And again, I don't normally lump together uh, people like uh, Joe Biden and Mike Pence. But the reality is we already know that the Mike Pence prosecution, same kind of thing, not going forward. Both of them not only cooperated, but basically raised their hands and said, hey, look what we found. Take a look at me in the case of Mike Pence. Investigations of both of those in both cases finding, yeah, the documents should not be there, but no criminal intent because there's no purposeful evasion, if you will, with respect to the federal law, nothing there to prosecute, and that's what we should anticipate from this case, like we did with the Mike Pence case. Matt, does politics weigh into this at all? <laughs> politics weighs into everything. everything. Yes, it does. However, I, I think the standard that the uh, the system would look at any former president and identify and criticize if they mishandled um, classified documents is appropriate. The difference in the prosecution that is pending down in Florida is that President Trump is accused of knowingly doing so, knowingly obstructing the investigation, trying to hide the documents, and in a recorded conversation showing classified documents to people who weren't allowed to see them and commenting that he couldn't do it. And that's a whole different level of um, action than what appears to be incredible sloppiness by um, these other officials who have taken these documents home when they they know better and shouldn't. Sort of the, the public's way of looking at it. I'll give you my, it seems remarkable to me, and I've been in the White House a, a number of times, and the security that's on display there is, even with cell phones, you can't take them in a lot of the rooms. 
that somebody can just walk out with like highly classified documents and throw them in their garage seems nuts to me. And there are some photographs I think we've seen in the media of kind of the staffers taking those boxes sort of in that, that street between uh, the West Wing and the old executive office building, putting in the back of a truck. We'd still rely upon human beings to make those judgment calls, and somebody's got to go through thousands of those documents. You know, the better practice here is to say, listen, we're going to leave all these here. Over time, people can take a look at those. If there are things that I want for my library, that sort of thing, then send them to me. But don't just pack them up and and take them into your garage. Take them back to Indiana. Take them to South Florida or New Jersey. And again, as Matt said, the big difference, criminal versus uh, non-criminal, is intent, purposeful uh, violation of the law. If Joe Biden is indeed found no criminal liability and Donald Trump, that we have the documents case. I'll say it again because I said it before. Why do we not think the documents case against Trump is a slam dunk? I think it's the strongest of the four. But why wouldn't it be quickly prosecuted and and convicted? Um, In my experience, and Jim can differ, nothing happens quickly um, in the federal courts. (laughs) Because there's attorneys involved. (laughs) Correct. And and there are lots of motions and there are issues that need to be weeded through. The immunity thing is making its course in the insurrection case, but it's applicable to the charges down there. Uh, Things just take time. But I think trial is scheduled there for May, which to me is relatively quick, uh, or at least consistent with federal criminal prosecutions. Um, And right now that one's set to go. I don't see something that's going to stop it. The other big aspect of the documents case, at least the most part these other cases do not have, is a national security aspect. I've handled a couple of these cases here in the Eastern District of Wisconsin. And you should know that any time you've got a single page, that has the words classified, uh, you know, secret on it. Um, you've got to go through all kinds of hoops for disclosure of it in, dis- in discovery. And the judge also has to, her name is Eileen Cannon there. She's a federal district judge there in Florida. She also has hearings on whether or not and how those documents can be used in trial. Here we've got lots and lots of them. And so that, too, is adds to the, the delay, if you will, in getting all this done. Also some concerns about the extent to which she is scheduling things in a real expedited fashion. Some of that may be legitimate. I'm not going to get inside the particular docket scheduling of the district court down there. She's been considered to be pro-Trump. Exactly, right? And you can to some extent. I'm not saying she's obstructionist. Um, To the extent that your caseload requires it, you can schedule things as your overall caseload demands that you make attention to various things. One, I would tap the brake slightly on it being a slam dunk, whereas I think it is a case they can prove all of the elements with outstanding proof going back to politics you have a jury of your peers who are all have some kind of political leaning. And I think in all of these prosecutions, the looming danger of jury nullifications of simply having jurors who will not convict a former president that they support is is a very real consideration. That is a brilliant point. It is in Florida. So and, and we know that Donald Trump's very popular in that state. All right. Another case that's uh, high profile, not for the, the case specifically, but for the conduct of the district attorney and a prosecutor will discuss that case as we wind up our legal hour here on WTMJ Now. Hope you're enjoying the legal hour here on WTMJ Now. Having a lot of fun with my two guests, uh, former U.S. attorney for Southeastern Wisconsin, Jim Santel, and a local attorney here who's argued a lot of cases in Wisconsin, redistricting and recall. Matt O'Neill joining us. All right, so, gentlemen, in Fulton County, Georgia, there's there's the case, and then there's the... All the other stuff. There's and, the sideshow also, We're talking right? about the uh, District Attorney, Fannie Willis, Nathan Way, the prosecutor, apparently had an affair or having an affair. I'm not sure where that stands. Don't really care. I guess the question for me is, does that have impact on the actual case, Jim? 
The very short answer, surprising from me, is no, it should not. And why, sh- I guess, why should I? I'll play devil's advocate. Absolutely, why right? And understand this in the court of public opinion also, and we're spending a lot of time talking about it appropriately. Um, the answer is that two grand juries in Georgia looked at this and returned this sweeping indictment, this RICO indictment, many, many defendants, including including the one who brought this particular motion, saying that because of this defendant's discovery of this relationship, which apparently continues, Fannie Willis did to her credit file, again, this omnibus brief just last week, saying, yes, I'm in a relationship with the, prosec- the, the fellow prosecutor here. He says because of that internal office relationship, my case against me should be dismissed. That is not only a bridge too far. There's no connection there. And so that's why I say no. That's not to say that the judge is not going to entertain the motion to dismiss. He's got a hearing coming up, and he's going to address the extent to which those personnel, those internal personnel issues have an impact upon the substantive prosecution going forward. Yeah, it's it's a laughable argument to say the case should be dismissed. It's not a laughable argument to say that one or the other of the two prosecuting attorneys should be taken off the case or both. That's a legitimate argument. I think it's a loser. Um, but I, you know, love is love. It happens. But it has nothing to do with the prosecution or the merits of the prosecution. What I think will happen is that Mr. Wade will um, will resign from his post and they'll move forward with the case. Especially in a situation where, again, so high profile, whether it goes to trial this year, more likely even next uh, during the, the, the post-election period, You just don't want this, as I said before, this sideshow going on. You don't need that as a prosecutor. You don't need that for the public's integrity, if you will. And so get rid of the issue and move on with the substance. Will it delay the the start of the trial? It should not. Again, the judge, I assume, will have this hearing, and he can rule fairly expeditiously on this and say, you know what, what's going on, the internal issues, you've got to resolve those. Those are not things for judicial consideration, and then move on. Not to say, not to say that that will not continue to be a subject of discussion, but it should not uh, address the, the timing of the, of the trial itself. The larger issue there is this huge, huge indictment, right? RICO across the board, massive indictment. And that's the one where Fannie Willis has said, you know, we're ready to start, but unlikely that will finish any time in 2024. Is that the richest? I mean, that's not the right word. It's got, it's got, I've read through this thing. I mean, it's just so much detail. It's, it's a, out of the four prosecutions, it is the one, if you only had to read one, it's the one indictment to read because it covers the entire scope of what was happening once the election results came in all the way to the very end of when Joe Biden was finally sworn in. And it does so exhaustively. It does so, I think, narratively very well. But of all the cases, it's one that captures everything. Right. Including the fake electors, for example, those kinds of things, the, the so-called uh, Chesbro Memorandum, the Wisconsin Memorandum. How yeah, this Linked to Wisconsin. Absolutely, right? All those things, as Matt just said, they are in there. There are a bunch of pages at the very end that are just the charging counts. But the first portion of it, as you said, it's a talking indictment, and you can read it and understand what happened. Yeah, actually, I've read a lot of these these uh, these charges against Donald Trump for the various cases. This one is the easiest to read, I thought. I think so. It's a, it's a long read, but it's right. laid out pretty well, bullet points, and... I actually enjoyed reading it because you actually know what you're talking about. Our guests, Jim Santel, Matt O'Neill, after the break, I'm going to throw some quick hitters at you guys because you're smart and I want to just hear your answers without me preparing you <laughs> for those, for those questions. Go. We'll see how they do after this on WTMJ now. Great hour with attorney Matt O'Neill, partner in law firm of Fox O'Neill and Shannon here in Milwaukee. And of course, Jim Santel, former U.S. attorney for Southeastern Wisconsin. I've worked with Jim for 12 plus years. He's uh, Both guys are great gentlemen and smart guys, which is why we. 
have done this hour. So some sort of uh, attorney to lay person, all the casual listeners out there. This, this one, I've always been curious about this. You know your client's guilty, and you're asked to defend somebody that's guilty. You know he's guilty. I guess, do you, I, that's, I guess that's the first question. If you know he's guilty, you still have to defend him. How does that work exactly? <laughs> so you have to respect the system, and our system is built on the requirement that the government prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And your job then and your client has a right to defend him or herself and make the government prove its case, and that is solely your job. You are not the decider. You are not the jury. You are simply an advocate for a person who is upholding their rights, and that's the only way you can approach that. Is it hard to do? Uh, when you know someone is guilty of the thing that they're being accused of. It, it's not. It might change the zeal with which you defend the case, and it might change the trepidation you face when the jury's coming back with a verdict. You might not be that nervous, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't uh, affect your function. Strong endorsement of what Matt just said, which is the system works based upon defense counsel putting people, formerly like me, uh, to the test and making certain that Mr. Santel provides evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to this jury, and the jury comes back if they do it all and finds unanimously that the defendant uh, committed that crime. All right, another quick hitters. As a layperson, not an attorney, will we, all of us Americans who aren't attorneys, know more about the legal system at the end of 2024 than we do now? And is that useful information? Yes, (laughs) Yes, 100%. <laughs> uh, we're going to watch at least these four cases and more of them play themselves out in the public, reported every day, and, and people are going to find out, I say it again and again, our system works. And it is going to build the respect of people in this country that our system is strong and that it works. You'll see. And I think we already do. Um, we've already talked about what a search warrant is. We did the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. Let's talk about where a search warrant comes from. That's authorized by a judge. No president can do that. No prosecutor can do that alone. Let's talk about where an indictment comes from. That's 26 people pulled from the community. They come in, review the evidence, determine whether, again, by a, by a probable cause, there was a reason to go forward with indictment. All those kinds of civics things we are learning and we already have. Explain this to me. Of all the groups I talk to, I respect attorneys the most. But when I see public opinion polling about popularity of attorneys, it's often very low. It's not car salesman low, but it's low. Why is that? Oh, (laughs) because we talk too much. Um, And I think everybody sees attorneys on TV always trying to get your business and pick you up if you've just fallen down outside your front steps and people are worried about being pigeonholed or subject to a bogus case. Uh, So we, we earn a bit of it. The great majority of attorneys out there, in my experience, and Matt's as well, are outstanding people who have the interests of justice. I agree. Of clients at heart. What you do get, of course, and this is not to be critical of the media, you do get the focuses upon the Rudy Giuliani's and others out there who are subject to disciplinary proceedings for doing what? For lying, right? And they should be responsible for that. That is the a tip of not a not a tip of an iceberg. That's the lowest portion of an iceberg, not representative of the bar. I probably know the answer, but if an attorney lies in front of a judge or a jury in a case, that attorney can be gone after, right? You can be disbarred. Absolutely. That is an absolute violation of an ethical rule and one that subjects you to disbarment if proven. You can never cross that line, and there are times when you've got to back away from representation. If indeed your client is asking you to make a representation, you go to the judge and say, Judge, I need to withdraw because I cannot violate that oath. I'll end it with this. I wish the same rule applied to politicians Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they lie every day. (laughs) Gentlemen, Matt O'Neill, Jim Santel, absolute pleasure. Great hour. Great to be here with you, Steve.